Pershut, Gemara de Asra, Shlita, Pershut, Dr. Shemtov, who uh, invited me here this evening on behalf of the call, and Pershut, all of you who came out this evening to learn, and then I'm coming here to be Mabatal, your learning. Many familiar faces in the crowd, either from Lander College or from uh, maybe Kamenetz. I used to live here, actually, about um, 15 years ago. We lived a block away on, East, uh, on Avenue and between East 19th and Ocean Avenue, right between Kamenetz and Hatzalah. And um, I actually used to be a Rebbe in Kamenetz, a 12th grade Rebbe, so it was very convenient. And, uh, but then I was uh, asked to become the Mashkiach in Lander College for Men, based medical Talmud in Kew Garden Hills. That's the place that actually... In, wants you to wear a mask, and, um, and so we, we were commuting at first, and then uh, in the end we just moved there. But um, it's a big schot to be here, Ben Kessel Asar between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which uh, many of the great Svarim say is like a Chalamayed. It's Chalamayed between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippurim. And it's a time that we have to prepare now for Yom Kippurim, and it's a very intense time for many. And everybody has to think of things that they personally could do better. You don't have to make big, big changes in your life. The Sarim Akdashim say, and the great rabbis of recent times say that the smaller the Kabbalah, the better. Find something very, very small that you think needs some correction. And work on that. And don't make it big. If it's too big, it's not good either. Because then it's not going to happen. They say the great Rav Shach, the Rav Shiva Panovich, Rosh Hashanah of one year was a very scary year in Eretz Yisrael during the Persian Gulf War, that Kufa, that time period. They asked him, did the Rav Shiva make a Kabbalah? Did he make some Kabbalah on himself? And he said, yes, I did. And they asked him, could you share that with us? He says, sure. I was macabre on myself that every time I would say Birkat Amazon, I would say it from a bencher. I would say it, I would use a, a, a sefer, I, I would read it out of a sidur. And not when I go outside, because when I go outside, if I'm ever at a wedding or something, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find a birkon. So only when I'm home, I'm going to bench, I'm going to say Birkat HaMazon out of a Sidor, and only from Rosh Hashanah to Hanukkah. That's it. Very, very limited Kabbalah, but that is very important. Hashem sees that we're trying our best, we want to change, we are, and we want our change to be real. So, if we make a small Kabbalah, that's really, really great. HaKadosh Baruch Hu likes that a lot, and HaKadosh Baruch Hu will give us a great schut to pass this, uh, the great din that's before us. I want to speak about something, and it's a very tricky thing to speak about, but I think if there's any place I can speak about it, it's here, because I know the reverence and the awe that you have for your Maradasra, so I know that nobody will think that I'm in any way giving Musar to this kihila. But outside of this shul, Outside of this very chashav akila kedusha here, 
there's unfortunately a problem sometimes in some areas with Amunat Chachamim, with the fact that we don't always have the proper awe and reverence and respect and admiration and appreciation for our rabbis and for our teachers. And as a result of that, we say in al every Yom Kippurim and this Vidoy process is very, very major part of Yom Kippur. It's the mitzvah. The Rambam says that the mitzvah of tshuva is vidui. That's the mitzvah, to confess before Hashem with a broken heart. And one of the viduyim is, that we have disgraced, we have not acted respectfully to our parents, harim, umarim, and our teachers, and our rabbeim, our rabbis. The reason why I say that it's a particular problem these days is because I know personally from my colleagues that I speak to who are rabbis, they say that it's very difficult today to lead because the people don't want to follow. The people don't want to listen. It came to a head really during this period of time when during this magefa that we're going through, Corona, and in many shuls, there are very big problems with health issues, and the rabbis sometimes very much want to in, insist on having masks, but the people don't want it. And the rabbis feel that there should be, but the people, there's pushback. And this is one major example of how we're not really always abiding by what our Das Terah says, what our leaders say, but we are sort of telling our leaders what we want. And that's a very bad thing. That's not the way Klal Yisrael is supposed to operate. You know, there's a very great rule of thumb that the first time in the Torah that anything appears, you find the first time it appears, you could trace back the root of what the problem is to that first time. Whatever it is in the Torah, you want to find something in the Torah and where it comes from and what's the source from where it emanates. You look at the very first time it appears in the Torah and that's where it is. And that's where you could take your shovel and start digging and find the truth of what the problem is. The very first chet, the very first sin in the Torah is, of course, when the nachash went to Chava and told her to eat from the Eitzadat, and she listened, of course, and then she gave it to Adam. Now, the question is asked, why did the Nachash go to Chava? Why didn't he go to Adam? Adam was the one that was commanded from Hashem not to eat the Eitzadat. So if he wants to trap somebody in a sin, shouldn't he go and try to seduce Adam instead of Chava. What does he want with Chava? The Arachayim HaKadosh says that there was a major difference between Adam and Chava here. Adam, his mitzvah, or his Avera, of eating from the Eitz Hadas, was a Dairaisa. 
It was from the Torah. It's from straight from Hashem. He got the mitzvah from Hashem. Don't eat from the Eitzadas. You can eat from any other fruit in the in the in the Gan Eden in the Garden of Eden, but don't eat from the Eitzadas. That's a Daraisa. When it comes to Chava, did Chava hear it from Hashem? No. Who did she hear it from? Adam. So the Archaim HaKadosh says that for Chava, what was it? What was this mitzvah? It was a Durabanan. Chava had a mitzvah to listen to Adam. Adam was like the Maradasra of the world at the time. He was the rabbi. Chava was supposed to listen to the rabbi. If the first sin in the Torah was that the Nachash goes and tries to start up with Chava, that means the very essence of sin for us, for Klal Yisrael, is going to be our weakness of listening to the Durabonans, listening to the rabbis. How many times have we ourselves said, or if we haven't said it, we've heard other people say, it's only Durabonan. Don't worry, you could do it. It's only Durabonan. It's not biblical, it's rabbinical. It's a very common thing. But that's a fallacy. Because the entire Torah that we have is only built on the Rabbanon. Without the Rabbanons, without the Gemaras that you're all learning from, without the Shulchan Aruch, without all of the, all of the Paiskim and all of the Rishayim and Achrein, without them, we wouldn't know what the Torah is. The Gayim also have, a, have the Old Testament. They have it. You go into any hotel room, you open up the drawer, there's an Old Testament, and there's more even. So how does their book differ from our book? The difference between them and us, Lahavdil, is that we have Torah Shabbat, which explains what the Torah is all about. In a couple of days, we're going to be taking a lulav and an esrog. Does it say in the Torah to take a lulav and an esrog? How, how do we know what an esrog is? It doesn't say take an esrog. It says pre hadar, take a beautiful fruit. An esrog is a nice fruit, don't get me wrong, but... On the night of Rosh Hashanah, when I had a Shechianu, I had beautiful fruits on my table. I'm sure you did also. I forgot this fruit. It was called um, a dragon fruit, maybe. Very exotic-looking, beautiful fruit. I'd say that that's a good candidate to be a priest. Other, what about you? Maybe I should take a dragon fruit. A, a star fruit, maybe, would be a nice fruit to take with my lulav this year. How do I know that it's an esrog of all fruits? From the chumash, you don't know that. The rabbis came along and they told us with the Mesorah from Harsinai that the fruit that the Torah refers to is an etrog. Otherwise, we're, we're lost. We have no idea what it is. And there's a million of these things. Tfilin. It says to take a square box and put it on your head. It doesn't say that. It says, Take a jewelry, go to the jewelry store on Avenue M and you know, buy a, an ornament and, and hang, hang a diamond between your eyes. That's what the Torah says. How do you know it's tone? Where did you get this whole thing with a black box with a shin on both sides and a... It's the Rabbanan, the Rabbanan. So when we say it's only the Rabbanan, that's a tremendous mistake and it's a, it's a zilzul. It's something that's cheapening the words of the rabbis and we live with the words of the rabbis. And if the first sin in the Torah is the Rabbanan, we better be careful on the Rabbanans. This year Rosh Hashanah fell on a Shabbat. And we didn't blow a shayfer. Shayfer is a very, very important mitzvah, right? It's, a, it's major. Chazal say that when HaKadosh Baruch Hu hears the shayfer being blown, he gets up from his kisei din, 
from his seat of judgment, his throne of judgment, very strict. He gets up and he says, okay, I'm going to go to my seat of rachamim, of mercy. So the shayfer is a very, very powerful tool. We don't want to give that tool away so quickly. That's our secret weapon. But this year, because it was Shabbos, we didn't blow a shayfer. Why not? What could possibly stop a Jew from blowing a shayfer on the first day of Rosh Hashanah when we need it so badly? The answer is, it's a takana. The rabbi said, we don't want you to blow a shayfer on Shabbos. Why not? Well, here's the concern. You might come to carry it in the street, Daladamas, Pirshus Arabim, and in order to learn how to blow the shayfer, maybe nobody in the community knows how to blow a shayfer, I'm going to go to a tutor on the morning of Rosh Hashanah, which falls on Shabbos, and I'm going to, to learn from him how to blow a shayfer. Very, very far-fetched takana. Because there's not too many Rishut HaRabims today in the world. Very rare to find the Rishut HaRabim. Maybe here in Brooklyn there are actually you know, more possibilities. But when you leave Brooklyn or maybe Manhattan... Very, very few. In Queens, I don't think there's any. Maybe, you know, if I Van Wick Expressway, perhaps. You need a lot of different criteria to meet, to fulfill that need of, uh, of the requirements of the Rabbi Seth Rosh Hashanah. Most of the streets that we have in the world today is a Carmelis, which is it's not a Rosh Hashanah, it's not a Rosh Hashanah. So for me to walk, let's say I would need to learn. I'd take my shepherd out of my house and walk in the streets of Queens. It's not a daraisa. It's at best a darabonon. So for that concern that I might, or there might be a Jew somewhere that doesn't know how to blow a shepherd, and he'll take it out of the house, he's walking in a caramelist. So for that you're going to... It's a darabonon. But the power of the darabonon as we enter into the new year, into Rosh Hashanah, screams. It's not just a darabonon. It's a darabonon. We have to be scared of the rabbis. We have to be scared of the drabanans. So much so that we're willing to put aside the shofar, the powerful shofar, just because the rabbi said, don't blow it, for this reason. That's what a drabanan is. So we can't be so flippant with drabanans. We have to be very makbid that we're keeping them and that we appreciate the drabanans. Tell you a beautiful story, number of beautiful stories, but a Rosh Hashanah Dika story. There was a great rabbi, his name was Rav Meir Simcha Hakayin of Devinsk. Anyone ever hear of that rabbi? Meshachachma, very good. He wrote the Sefer Meshachachma and another Sefer. What's the other Sefer that he wrote? Arsameach, very good, doctor. So he wrote the Meshachachma, what? Rabbi and a doctor. The Meshachachma and the Arsameach was written by a great, great rabbi who lived in the city of Devinsk. Devinsk was uh, the capital of Tyra in Latvia. And there was another great rabbi in that city by the name of the Rogachover. Great genius. And the two of them were different communities. One was a Hasidish rabbi and one was a, a Lithuanian rabbi. And they both got along amazingly well. And each led their own respective communities, but with great love for one another. The Meshachachma had Talmidim in his community, 
Bacharim, Yeshiva Bacharim, and he would take care of them, and he would teach them, and they would learn by him. The night of Rosh Hashanah, he invited a few of these Talmidim to his house, and he had one favorite Talmud. His name was Rav Shpatya. I never heard that name except for here, but his name was Rav Shpatya. Shpatya. And Shpatya was the apple of his eye. He loved this Bacher. Special chain, Talmud Chacham, a budding, a wonderful human being. And the Meshachachma had a special place in his heart for Shpatya. All the people around the table were given the simanim, as we all have the minag, it's, not a, it's a gemara actually, that we're supposed to eat simanim on, on Rosh Hashanah night. It's not a new custom, it goes back to a gemara in Krisus and in Harius. And everybody was given by the rabbanit, by the rabbitson, for the simanim, a uh, piece of a, of a fish head. So they can make the iratzon, Everybody had this fish head on their plate, and the minig was in their family that everybody goes and takes the fork and, and makes their own yiratzon, and everybody says amen. So when they went around the table, when it was Shpatya's turn to pick up the fish with his fork and to make the yiratzon, everybody noticed that by accident, the rabbits and the rabbanit, instead of giving him the head of the fish gave him by accident the tail of the fish. And all eyes were on Shpatya. Especially Mayor Simchi wanted to see how he would deal with this. Well, what's, what's he going to do? Is he going to make a big stink about it? Is he going to say, hey, you know, where's my head? I don't want the tail. What's he going to do? Shpatya, without blinking an eye, takes the tail of the fish on the fork and he says the following, Yiratzon sheniyeh zanav l'arayot v'lo rosh l'ashualim. There's a Mishnah in Pirkei Avos in Parak that says that it's better to be the tail of a lion than the head of a fox. And what he was meaning was that he wants to completely, he's very happy being a tail as long as he's a tail of the Meshachachma. If he's able to sit by the feet of the Meshachachma and drink up his Tyra and understand everything that the Meshachachma is saying, he's perfectly content. He doesn't want to be a head. I don't need to be a Rosh Hashiva myself. I want to just be a Zanav I want to be the lion's tail. And he looked at the Meshachachma as he was saying it. So everybody understood what he meant and the Meshachachma had such nachat from this. He had such simcha that he embraced Shvatya and he said, come sit next to me for the rest of the meal. Shvatya was at the end of the table, now he, was, he got an upgrade. He was moved all the way up to the front of the table right next to the Meshachachma. But that's what Rosh Hashanah and Mekipurim is all about. We come in with this resounding, emphatic command to listen to the Chachamim. Of course, it's very important to listen to the Torah and to listen to the Rabbeinu Shleilam. But it's equally important to be mevatel ourselves, to be a zon of la'arayas, to be able to be totally given over to our chachamim, to be mevatel ardas, to sort of 
turn off our brains in a sense and be able to submit to the words of the Chachamim. Because that's what the Torah really is. The Torah is what it is because of the Chachmei Torah. I saw a delicious story the other day. My wife brought home a book, a safer for herself, but I, I always steal her book. Whenever she brings home a book, I steal it. She doesn't care, I hope, but you know, I, I need material. So she bought a safer called Reb Chaim Kanievsky on the Yom Naran. So I stole it. And there's a, an amazing story in there. The story goes as follows, that... Reb Chaim Kanievsky's father was who? The stipler. The stipler guy was, you know, he was the Gadladar. Reb Chaim was the future Gadladar, but Reb Chaim had such kibbutz and, and he had such respect and awe for his father. And they used to learn together every day by Chavrusa. They, they, they had a Chavrusa shop together every single day, Reb Chaim and his father, the stipler. Now, Reb Chaim... Had a, has, had, a, had a sister, and she had a son-in-law, and his name was Chaim also. So meaning Reb Chaim's nephew's name was Chaim, and Reb Chaim's sister went to the stipler, went to her father, and said to him, Tati, Chaim's not well. Chaim's really sick. He's not feeling well. Now, she meant her son-in-law, Chaim, but the stipler didn't understand that. The stipler automatically, I guess, assumed that it was Reb Chaim Kanievsky. So when Reb Chaim Kanievsky came in for his Seder to learn with his father, the stiper looks at him and he says, what are you doing here? Go to bed. Now, if I was Reb Chaim Kanievsky at that moment, I'd say, why should I go to bed? It's uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I'm not tired. What are you putting me to bed for? Reb Chaim had such ema, he had such reverence for his father, his rebbe, his father, the Gadol Adar, he turned around, he went back to his apartment on Rechov Rashbam, 23, and he went straight into bed at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We know Reb Chaim doesn't sleep at all. I mean, he, if he sleeps, it's like an hour, the whole night at like 3 o'clock in the morning maybe. He doesn't sleep. So all of a sudden, he's in bed at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, healthy, normal, everything is fine. Rebetzin Kanievsky comes home, Reb Chaim's Rebetzin, Allah Shalom, and she hears somebody in the bedroom. She thought maybe it was a Ganif that was like looking for something or something, and she goes in, she sees her husband in bed. This is like really strange. She never, ever saw her husband in bed, maybe ever. All of a sudden, three o'clock in the afternoon, her husband's in bed. It made no sense, and she said, why are you in bed? She says, what do you mean? My father told me I should go to bed. Well, why? He said, I don't know, but he told me to go to bed. I went to bed. What should I do? She runs to the stipler. She says, why is Chaim in bed? He says, because he's sick. She says, no, he's not. Anyway, she does a little research, and she figures out that it's her nephew, Chaim, not her husband, Chaim. She comes back to the stipler, and she says, it's not your son, Chaim, that's sick. It's your, your grandson, Chaim, that's sick. He says, oh, so tell Chaim to get out of bed. I'm waiting for him. 
So she goes home, and only once she makes it very clear that her father, that his father gave Rishos for him to get out of bed. Did he get out of bed? It's an amazing story. That's the level of Zihiros that a person has to have to his Chachamim, to the Chachmei the allegiance, the obedience. That's how we are. We, we, without, without that, we would never have a Messiah in Klal Yisrael. If, it's all, if, if all bets are off and we could do whatever we want and we don't have to listen to the rabbi and the rabbi is this and the rabbi is that, then what do we have anymore? We're only where we are because we have a Messiah from our Sinai. Dar achar dar. Generation after generation that we listen to the Chachmei Atara and there's a Messiah, a direct line for that. Every community with their own Chachamim and with their own Zekeinim, with their own Gedolim. Tell you a similar story with Rabbi Ruderman, Zechitzadik Levracha, the Rashiva of Ne Yisrael. I know uh, this community has a very close connection, I believe. And, and a lot of Sardisha communities have a very close connection, the Iranian community especially, with, uh, with, um, with Ne Yisrael, because they took in a lot of uh, immigrants, Sardic immigrants, and they you know, at great, at great expense, but they, they, they made an entire kilot throughout the world of Sephardic Jewry because they felt a responsibility to house them and to shelter them and to, and to educate them. So the great Rabbi Ruderman was a Talmud of the Altar of Slabotka. The Altar of Slabotka was... He was one man that changed the universe as we know it. There was a small yeshiva in Lithuania in a suburb of Kovna called Slabotka. And Slabotka was, it was sort of a competing school, if you will. I don't like using that word, but there were two schools of thought at the time, of Musser thought, Slabotka and Nevardik. Nevardik was a huge network of yeshivot throughout Russia and Eastern Europe. I think there were 70, maybe more, yeshivot in this network, started by the altar of Navardik. Navardik was very different than Slabotka. Slabotka was very different from Navardik. Navardik, their style of Musser was, I'm a nothing. I'm a complete nobody. I am worm. I am food for the maggots. I am dust on the earth. I am completely nothing. In fact, they tell a joke about Musser Seder Nevardik, that there was a freshie, like a new kid, a new Talmud that just came into yeshiva, and he came into Musser Seder, the Seder where they learn Musar, and he hears everybody Nevardik screaming, Ich bin agarnished, Ich bin agarnished, I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing, I'm a zero. And when in Rome, do like the Romans. So this little freshie comes in, he says also, he starts screaming, Ich bin agarnished, I'm a nobody, I'm a nothing. And two of the older Chasheva Bachrim, you know, were sitting in front of this freshi. And they turned to each other, they look at him, they say, ah, look who thinks he's a nobody. That was Nevardik. Slabotka was the exact polar opposite. The altar from Slabotka would have none of that. He felt that the best way to raise a person is not to push him down into the ground to make him 
a shmata, to make him a smartut, to make him nothing, but rather to build him up. Godless ha'adam. Man is great. Man is the pinnacle of creation. Everything was for Adam. Adam is an amazing thing. Adam Arishan was misayfa'ilam v'atsayfa'i. He was able to stand here and his head would hit the sky every time he would get up. He was the entire universe. And after the chet, like we spoke about before, Hakadosh put his hand on him, umiyatai, he shrunk him down to size. But Adam still remains Adam. He remains great. He's a Yitzir Kapov Shalakadosh who is the handiwork of man, and we, we all are that. We were created in God's image. Man is great. I'm not going to say that, that Navardic was less successful than Slabotka. Navardic produced great Gedalim as well. The Stipler, for example, was a product of Navardic. So we have to be careful not to put Navardic down. But let me tell you who the graduates of Slabotka were. Rav Aaron Kotler, the Rashiva of Lakewood. Rav Shach, Rashiva of Panovich. Rav Yaakov Kamenetsky, the Rashiva of Tervadas. Rav David Leibowitz, the Rashiva of Chavitz Chaim. Rav Ruderman, the Rashiva of Ner Yisrael. Uh, the Rashiva of the Mir, the Altar Son. And many, many others that I'm not even, I don't have time to mention. We go all night. And these young men, grew up to be G'dayle Hadar. They were the leaders of the generation in all, in Eretz Yisrael, in Europe, in America. They built Tyra because of this movement of Godless Adam. They were made to believe that they were great, and they were, and they lived up to their potential in amazing ways, and they trained other people to do as well. Rav Ruderman was one of the closest Talmidim, the closest students, and when he was young, of the altar. The altar absolutely loved Rav Rudiman, just like the Meshachachma loved who? Shpatya, very good. And Rav Rudiman loved the altar. Years later, when Rav Rudiman was already beyond his teens, when he was in Slabotka, he was in his teens, now he's in his 80s. He went from Baltimore to New York, he was staying in a hotel, he had a conference to go to, he gets a phone call from an old friend of his from Slabotka. And he says, I haven't seen you. No, he didn't get the phone call. The attendant who was attending to Ravrudim and got the phone call in the hotel room. And he says, is the Rashiva there? Yes. All right, tell him to stay there. I'm about to come up. It's going to be great. We'll have a reunion. I used to be his roommate in Slabotka. He's going to be so happy to see me. We're going to re- reconnect. We haven't seen each other in 50, 60 years. So the Talmud was very happy. He went over to Rudin. You're not going to believe it. It's amazing. You're going to have a reunion. It's with who? You know, Chaim. Chaim what? Chaim so-and-so. Rav Ruderman turned pale. And he says, I'm going out now, and I'm going to be back very, very, very late tonight. So he says, that's so strange. Why? He says, just, I'm not going to be here when he's here. And he was like shaking. He runs out of the hotel. He comes back very late at night. When he comes back, the Talmud says, Rebbe, he came and he was disappointed. Your old friend. Why didn't you stay? He says, because the altar told me some 65 years ago 
that I should not be friendly with him. He was not going to be a good influence on me. And I should stay far away. I was friendly with him, but I was maybe becoming mushba from him. I was becoming too influenced by him. And my Rebbe told me that I should not have anything to do with him. And he never told me that I can. So here's Rav Rudiman, 85-year-old, Sadiq Hadar, Gadol Hadar, the biggest yeshiva in the country perhaps at the time. And he's still listening to his Rebbe of 60 years ago. Because he had such a munas chacham, he had such obedience to chachme Yisrael, to chachme Atira. I want to end with a, a story about Rabarach Ber. Rabarach Ber Libowitz is one of the great Rosh Hashivas of the Yeshiva world. He was Rosh Hashiva in Kamenetz in, in Europe, and a very close, one of the closest Talmidim of Reb Chaim Salavetcher, Reb Chaim Brisker. Did anyone see a picture ever of, of Reb Archber? Reb Archber had a beautiful Hadris Panim. He looked beautiful. He, has, he looked like an angel. There's no other way of describing him. There were some seminary girls a few years ago. This is a recent... He died many years ago, 60, 70 years ago. More. There were some seminary girls in the last five, ten years who were in their dormitory in, in Yerushalayim somewhere. American girls... And they were looking through pictures of G'dayli Yisrael. And one of the pictures was a Rebarach Baron. And a girl, as girls might do sometimes, they, she said something that was disparaging about the appearance of Rebarach Baron. I don't know what she could have possibly said because he's such a beautiful, the most beautiful face in the world. But he said, she said something derogatory about Rebarach Baron's face, about Rebarach Baron's appearance. Within a half an hour, Rabbi say. She developed a very severe case of Bell's palsy, which is like a, a slight um, stroke in one side of her face, which became paralyzed. She was not able to move it. Now, you don't have to have Ruch HaKadosh to figure out, to put two and two together. And her father came from America to, to be with her at this very critical time. And somebody recommended that they go to see Rav Steinemann about this case. And Rav Steinemann saw the girl, spoke to the father, and it was clear, abundantly clear, that the reason why this happened was because she made that remark about Rav Baruch Bear's appearance. So they asked Rav Steinemann, okay, what should we do? We have, to, we have to get her back to normal. This is, we can't. So he says, there's only one thing you could do. Get a minyan, Go to Baruch Ber's kever, to his grave, and ask him mechila in front of a minyan, and, and that will do it. That should do the trick. Okay, very, it's not going to be cheap, but it's easy, right? No. Because we don't know where Baruch Ber is buried. Don't know. So the entire excitement of the plan, whatever, sort of became foiled right away because they didn't know where Baruch Ber was buried. Now, they did know roughly the cemetery in which he's buried, because they know that he was buried near his father, and they know that he was buried, there was no room in the cemetery to bury him, so they buried him perpendicular to his father. So if you go to a cemetery, all the graves are sort of the same direction, right? But Rebarach Ber's grave was on the top, like a T, on top of his father's kever. 
But the problem is that the whole cemetery was bombed out by the Nazis, and they don't know where his father was buried, and they don't therefore know where Baruch Bar is buried. So there is a wonderful organization that, you know, you have Chaverim, you have Atzal, and then there's this, this organization that goes and figures out Kibrit Sadikim. And the head of this organization heard the whole story, and he knew that it was an emergency. So he got the greatest technology, like infrared lights and, and all types of the, the, whatever they could to try to like sort of zoom down in the ground and try to figure out what's going on. And they were able, with satellites or with some other devices, to see that there was one grave that was perpendicular to all the other graves in the cemetery. And they knew, based on other testimonies, that that was exactly where Baruch was buried. And they got a minion together, and the girl and her father and a minyan, they went and they cried by the grave of Baruch Bar, please, be Michael her. And within a half an hour, her face was completely back to normal. This is the power of Chachme Yisrael. They're still alive. Another story that I read in that book about Reb Chaim Kanievsky that just jumped into my head is that Reb Chaim Kanievsky was once offered a lift in somebody's car, and he took him up on Okay, fine. So the car is, the engine is humming. Reb Chaim gets into the car. He, he tries to, you know, to drive, and the car, like, dies. The car just stalls out. Fancy, brand new car. Reb Chaim says, all right. He gets out of the car. The car starts up again. Chaim gets back in the car, the car dies. So Chaim says to the guy, like, what's the story with this car? Who bought this car? He says, not my car, it's my son's car. He says, does your son deal in ribis? Does, he, does his business involve any sort of funny interest, loaning, very, very forbidden? So he says, I don't know, let me look. He called his son. son says, yeah, I actually had a deal. That's Reb Chaim Kanyesi. These people are, are, they're in a different world. We have to be so careful. Like Chazal said, watch their coals. They're hot. They're steaming hot. We have to be very careful never ever to say anything wrong about our Chachm Yisrael. These days in Slichot and in Roshani Yom Kippur, really Yom Kippur, we say in Shema Kaleinu, we say, and then we say, Al, what do we say? Al, how does that one start? Al, Al, Tashlucheni Mil Fanecha, don't cast me away from you. And the Ruach HaKodesh, do not take away from me. Don't take away my Ruach HaKodesh. Isn't that a strange prayer? What does that mean? How many in the room have Ruach HaKodesh? Raise your hand. Okay, besides for me. So how does everybody here say, We stand in front of the Rabbanish and we say, Don't take away my Ruach HaKodesh. I don't, I don't have Ruach HaKodesh. Who has Ruach HaKadosh in this time? Maybe I understand if Chaim Kanievsky could say that. But who else can say that? The Rav could say that. The Merida Astra. How many people could say, How many people? So what are we saying? 
So Rebarach Ber says, Rebarach Ber Libowitz, the man I just spoke about, he says the most beautiful vart. He says, you know what it means for Ruach Kotshecha Al-Tikach Mimeni, don't take away my Ruach HaKadosh? It's not talking about my personal Ruach HaKadosh. We're davening to Hashem, do not take away the G'dayla Yisrael from us. We have G'dayla Yisrael today. We have Rabbanim, we have Chachamim, we have Rashi Yeshivas, we have great leaders, great Rabbeim. We need them. L'kayim banu chachme Yisrael, we have to preserve them. Because without them, our ship would be lost at sea. They have Ruach HaKadosh. It's a tefillah, it's a prayer to God on Rosh Hashanah, Slichas, Yom HaKippurim. Don't take away our Ruach HaKadosh. Don't take away the G'dali Yisrael that represent Ruach HaKadosh in the world. One of the most important things to pray for on Rosh Hashanah, Yom HaKippurim, besides for all the other things that we need and besides for confessing our sins, is we have to daven to Hashem, that the G'dalei Yisrael are healthy and strong and happy and that we have obedience to them, we listen to them, we take care of them in every manner to make sure that they are well taken care of so that they can continue their holy mission. That's such an important part of our tefillahs on Yom Naram. I remember when I was a Talmud in Long Beach Yeshiva in for high school. There's a big Rosh Yeshiva there. You should live and be well. And I remember he used to speak before the tekiot, before the shofar. It was very dramatic. And he always, every year, he ended his shmuz. And you have to be mispala for the G'day Yisrael that they should be well. Beruach kachachal tikach Rabbi said, let's really work on this. If we're shvach in this, if we're a little weak in this, redouble our efforts, and it should be the greatest chus in din. HaKadosh Baruch Hu sees that we are being makabal on ourselves, this Kabbalah, to have a little bit more zihirut in emunas chachamim, in kavod chachamim, in yiras chachamim, and in Mitzvah Hashem we should all be zorcha to a gemar chatimah tovah.